You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 5th day of April, 2013. Welcome to episode 265 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Myth of Journalistic Objectivity. Longtime listeners of this report will no doubt be familiar with Bilderberger Charlie Rose, as we have had the chance to highlight some of his work numerous times before on this podcast, generally as he interviews fellow Bilderberg attendees about their plans for the New World Order. And again, anyone who is rolling their eyes at that summary should go back into the archives and listen to some of our previous examples of Bilderberger Charlie Rose interviewing some of his Bilderberg guests to get an idea of what I'm talking about. But earlier this week, I chanced upon an Ask Me Anything in AMA on Reddit.com with Bilderberger Charlie Rose himself, and so it was that I saw with interest some of the questions that were put towards Charlie, and uh, most of them being quite fawning about his wonder, wonderful, uh, masterful journalism, his wonderful interviewing style, his in-depth reporting, etc., etc. And in the midst of all of this babble and nonsense, I chanced upon this particular gem from JWingJU07, who wrote... In an age of media polarization and cable news, how have you managed to remain as objective and apolitical as possible? It's such an asset to your work, but must be difficult at times. And then Saint Rose replied, I understand what my role is, which is not to be an advocate, not to be someone who is pushing an agenda. It is in a sense to find out a story and bring to the table as much information and preparation as I can. I've never thought of myself as an advocate. I'm simply a reporter. My role is to simply use whatever skills I have to find out what happened, why, who. (sighs) Oh, Charlie Rose. Oh, what a wonderful articulate spokesman for truth. What an upstanding journalist. What objectivity he brings to the table. It's enough to make the angels weep. Except for the fact that it's all complete bunkum. And there is a reason, for those of you who are new to this report, why we refer to him always and at every opportunity as Bilderberger Charlie Rose, and that's because he attends the Bilderberg Conference in secret every year when it comes around with his Bilderberg friends, the top 150 or so of the uh, businessmen, politicians, and royalty, as they hobnob together with journalists like Charlie Rose and Canada's own Peter Mansbridge and many others besides, as they discuss in secret what is going to happen in the world in the coming year. And, uh, oh, yes, that's one of those little pieces of uh, wisdom and knowledge that he doesn't share with his audience. In fact, he will run away if you dare to bring up Bilderberg with him. Just one question, very important. What did you do at the Bilderberg meeting, meeting with world's elites in secret in Chantilly, Virginia, 2008, this year, last year? Sir, Mr. Rose, can you please answer the question? The last time we talked, uh, we had a very interesting, somewhat, interaction. I asked you about the Bilderberg Group and your participation in the Bilderberg Group, and I asked you what was happening in there since there was major decisions made according to many leaked documents that did come true. Uh, can you at least give us some insight about what happens at this secretive I- 
Elusive I've never seen anything happen there that I have not seen happen at every other conference I've ever gone to. But David Yon brags that the secret group created the Euro. I don't know. No. The I chief I'm, member. Yes, he did. I'm, he admitted that. But I don't know about that, yeah. I'm saying. I'm just saying that nothing... Uh, for me, it's a learning experience for all the conferences I go to. And, and most of the... I see a, a lot of the same people at the conferences, uh, whether they're from uh, business or politics or journalism. Do you think it's fair for the elites to collude together in secret I, and I, then I, I, the no, world decisions I, being made with the world most powerful influential people in media? I, I, I do not think it's fair to people to collude. Okay. But that's what you do when you go there. I mean, well, I go to a lot of conferences where I think I can learn something. <laughs> oh yes, his objectivity when it comes to reporting, I'm sure, is not influenced at all by the off-record conversations that he has with Henry Kissinger and the likes at the Bilderberg Conference every year and. Although he just happens to forget to talk about those conferences when he's on his program. But I'm sure he is just that stalwart of objectivity, right? Wrong. And of course, let's not just single out Bilderberg or Charlie Rose. There are many, many, many other journalists who have been similarly compromised over the years. Basically, take a famous journalist from the mainstream corporate media and you will have found someone who is involved in one way or another in shaping and attempting to use that journalistic platform as a way of pushing a very specific agenda. And this, again, applies to pretty much everyone we can think of. So let's just take one of the best-known examples, Walter Cronkite, the most trusted man in America, as we have been told endlessly over and over in that oft-repeated phrase that has uh, certainly surfaced once again since his death a few years ago. And, uh, well, what was this most trusted man in America? What was his real political allegiances and alliances? What was the agenda that he was really interested in promoting all of that time that he didn't actually ever come out and say to the audience? Well, we don't have to speculate about that. We can take it straight from the horse's mouth. Uh, you know that we have come to the point of our really being here this evening, uh, and that is to honor with the Norman Cousins Global Governance Award, uh, Walter Cronkite. We are proud to present to you this amethyst geode. Uh, and I hope all of you will take the opportunity at the conclusion of the program uh, to come up and examine it. We're not worrying about anybody carrying it off. Uh, it's too heavy for me to lift. Uh, but uh, it illustrates a very important lesson. The crystals of a geode are formed within another rock that serves as the foundation for their fragile beauty. Uh, the rock provides the structure necessary for the crystals to grow. And in similar fashion, world government is the structure necessary for global justice. You, sir. You, sir, have been a lifelong advocate of this principle, and it is appropriate, therefore, that we present you with this amethyst geo. Thank you very much, Mr. President. And uh, there are many of us here who had wished back 
couple of decades ago that we had been addressing you as Mr. President in a slightly different environment. And thank you, Mrs. Annan, for those lovely words you spoke. I will treasure them, and I'm greatly honored, quite obviously, by the Norman Cousins Global Government Governance Award. I'll try to get it right since I will be referring to it frequently, of course, from now on. Uh, first, uh, I, well, there are two reasons really why I'm particularly grateful and honored by this award. Uh, the first, uh, I, I, I believe, as Norman Cousins did, that the first priority of humankind in this difficult era is to establish an effective system of world law that will assure peace with justice among the peoples of all the world. <laughs> but uh, second, I, uh, I feel rather sentimental uh, about this award and this organization because half a century ago, Norman Cousins offered me a job as the spokesman and the Washington lobbyist for the really nascent uh, organization called World Federalists. <laughs> I, uh, I was honored. He and Oscar Hammerstein, Hammerstein met me in the Waldorf and twisted my arm quite vigorously, got me to take the job to take the place of Ted Waller, who was the first lobbyist and a noted supporter of the World Federalist Movement. I chose instead, uh, it turned out, to continue in the world of journalism. Uh, for many years, I did my best to report on the issues of the day with as much fairness uh, as I possibly could, in objective a manner as, uh, as possible to achieve. When I had my own strong opinions, I tried to put them aside for the moment in the interest of fairness. I didn't communicate them, I hope, to my audience. Now, however, now, however, my circumstances are considerably different. I'm in a position to speak my mind, and by God, I'm going to do it. All I can say is beware when the media tries to tell you who the most trusted man in America really is. Um, and ju that's just, again, one more example uh, to add to Charlie Rose. And we could continue documenting over and over and over again the agenda and the connections and the, the entire political ideology that is being pushed from behind the scenes by these supposed stalwarts of journalistic objectivity. And again, we could continue documenting, for example, people like Thomas Braden, the original co-host of uh, Crossfire on CNN, which Timothy Leary famously described as a program which was like listening to the left side of the CIA argue with the right side of the CIA. And that was a comment that was made advisedly because Thomas Braden was admittedly CIA. In fact, he even admitted it himself, and he even wrote a famous article in the Saturday Evening Post in 1967 called, I'm glad the CIA is immoral. You cannot make this stuff up, and it's just another example of uh, journalists who are, again, up to their eyeballs in the very politics that they claim to be objective about. Another example, of course, would be Anderson Cooper, who just happened to intern with the CIA when he was back in his uh, elite uh, Ivy League university days. And uh, But, of course, he 
he doesn't work for the agency anymore, right? And again, we could list these haphazardly, or we could even thorough do, do a thoroughgoing documentation of these connections by exposing the program which the CIA had implemented uh, in, in the 1950s and which they've been using for decades to literally embed some of their employees directly in the heart of the news media. This is a subject that I covered back in one of the first episodes of the Eye Open Report on Boiling Frog's Post back in September of 2011. It is uncontested fact that the CIA has enjoyed a long and intimate relationship with some of the largest news organizations in the world and has used this relationship to manipulate, censor, and even fabricate news stories in support of its own covert agenda. The story of that relationship was told most famously and most comprehensively by Carl Bernstein in Rolling Stone magazine in 1977. In his landmark article entitled The CIA and the Media, Bernstein outlined the history of the agency's use of assets in the news media from the 1950s through the 70s. The ties between the intelligence community and the news organizations were formalized at the highest levels of management and ownership and included, according to Bernstein, cooperation with media tycoons like Arthur Hayes Sulzberger of the New York Times, Henry Luce of Time Inc., and William Paley of CBS. Toward the end of his career, Sig Mickelson, the head of CBS News in the 1950s and the man credited with launching the career of the most trusted man in America, Walter Cronkite, admitted that CBS News worked closely with the CIA. Uh, at CBS, uh, we uh, had been contacted by the CIA. As a matter of fact, by the time I became the head of the whole news and public affairs operation in 1954, the ships had been established, and I was told about them and asked if I'd carry on with them. I think it was entirely in order for our correspondents at that time uh, to make use of uh, CIA agent ch uh, chiefs uh, of station and other members of the executive staff of CIA as sources of information which were useful in their assessments of world conditions. Would you say that continues today? Well, I, yeah, I would think probably for a reporter it would continue today, but because of all of the revelations of the period of the 1970s, uh, it seems to me that a reporter's got to be much more circumspect in doing it now, or he runs the risk of uh, at least being looked at with considerable disfavor by the public. I think you've got to be much more careful about it. The Bernstein article drew heavily on the findings of the Church Committee of 1975 and 1976, a congressional investigation into the actions of the intelligence community, to identify the various types of associations between the CIA and the media, from legitimate, accredited reporters who worked with the agency or carried out tasks on its behalf, often on a voluntary basis, to stringers and freelancers directly on the agency pay payroll, to columnists and commentators like C.L. Sulzberger of the New York Times and the Alsop brothers of the Saturday Evening Post and Newsweek, who could be counted on to insert agency-friendly comments and editorials into leading news outlets, thus effectively setting the, the agenda for the national media. The Church Committee exposed some of the dirt of the CIA's interference in domestic media, officially established as Operation Mockingbird by Frank Wisner, the director of the agency's covert intelligence branch, the Office of Special Projects, in 1948. However, when the committee began asking more specific and more potentially damaging questions, the CIA, then under the leadership of George H.W. Bush, issued a blanket statement that it would stop directly employing journalists and quietly directed the committee to change the focus of its inquiry. I thought that it was a matter of uh, real concern that planted stories intended to serve a national purpose abroad um, came home 
and were circulated here and believed here because uh, this would mean that the CIA could manipulate the news in the United States by channeling it through some foreign country. Now we're looking at that very carefully. Do you have any people being paid by the CIA who are contributing to a major circulation American journal? We do have people who submit pieces to other two American journals. Do you have any people paid by the CIA who are working for television networks? This, I think, gets into the kind of uh, getting into the details, Mr. Chairman, that I'd like to get into in executive session. Over the years, numerous specific examples of the agency's manipulation of the news media have surfaced, including multiple instances where stories that had been outright fabricated by CIA assets had resulted in the justification for military intervention. In the 1980s, for instance, a story about Russian MiGs being delivered to Nicaragua appeared on the front page of the New York Times. A CIA analyst turned whistleblower David McMichael later revealed this had been completely made up, but was reported as fact as a way of manipulating public opinion to support U.S. intervention in the region. How about this for a story? Just under a year ago, the Americans discovered a Soviet freighter carrying MiG fighter planes, which they said were on their way to Nicaragua. Here's the story on the front of the Times. Moscow warned on Nicaraguan MiGs, and there's a picture of a MiG-21. According to President Reagan, this showed that Nicaragua was a threat to the United States. Uh, and as it turned out, this was, uh, the evidence for this was based on satellite photography, which showed crates at an East European port uh, facility, uh, which were determined to be, in the science of cratology, the uh, crates of the sort in which MiG aircraft uh, frequently were shipped. And subsequent photographs a day or two later uh, showed that these crates had, were no longer on the dock. And an amazing uh, leap of logic it, uh, was advanced that necessarily they must have been uh, delivered to, to Nicaragua or were on their way to be delivered to Nicaragua. Well, the, you know, it's the usual thing. The charge makes the headlines. The retraction makes the inside pages. Eight or ten days later, it's revealed, well, MiGs weren't on the way, but that's no longer a headline. So what one is left with is the overall impression from the screaming headlines of the week earlier that Nicaragua continues to represent this enormous danger to the security of the United States. This nation of three million impoverished souls, half of whom are under the age of 15, you know. Well, at any rate, I hope people will avail themselves of the show notes for today's episode at CorbettReport.com to follow the link back to that report, to watch it in its entirety, and to search the archives of Corbett Report for previous episodes of this podcast and other work that we've done here exposing the ways that journalists are co-opted, corrupted, or outright employed by their financial and political elite to push specific agendas and to put certain ideas forward in the news media. But in, to a certain extent, having said that, although that background information is important and it is good to have that documented, to a certain extent, perhaps that misses the underlying point. 
And the point is that there is a dangerous idea that has been driven into the public over the past century and that has demonstrably and consciously been driven into the public's mind by certain connected individuals for certain reasons that we will get into shortly, that there is an ideal of journalistic objectivity to be reached, that somehow there is some ideal in which the conveying of news information can be done in some completely objective sense that has no agenda, ideology, or political persuasion behind it. And it is important to understand that that idea is itself a lie. It is completely and utterly unattainable. It is a myth. So first, let's talk a little bit about that, because I obviously, as someone who has entered the alternative media and now has that perspective of producing media of my own, I now understand this from a personal experience that I don't think I ever would have if I had not been doing this myself. But it is self-evidently the fact and the case that every single time you see a news report on television or on the radio or anywhere else that you encounter that information, it is subjective. It is coming from a worldview. It is politically informed. It does have an entire ideology and an idea behind it that is being pushed by the very existence of that news story. And again, this is a fundamental point. It isn't about people being bought or paid off or corrupted or colluding. It is the nature of the way that we convey information. So that, for example, when you watch a news report on TV, whatever that report might be about, it is coming from an ideological viewpoint insofar as some editor somewhere along the line has decided that this story should be reported on and not another story. So the idea of news itself is an ideological construction that, for example, we sitting in our homes need to know about the intimate details of a political scandal happening in Italy or whatever. If we see that on the news, then that is obviously something that someone thinks we need to know about. That in and of itself comes from a certain political ideology. And when, for example, someone does a random act of kindness for another person, well, that's not news. We don't talk about that on the news. Again, everything comes from an ideological perspective. Everything is ideologically informed in that manner. So even deciding what to cover and what not to cover is in and of itself an example of how journalism is not and can never be objective. Uh, and of course, Within the story itself, what is covered, who is talked to, who is not talked to, what viewpoints are not covered, again, is that type of background decision that the viewer never sees on the screen. They never see that decision process, but it is there behind every single story. So this idea that some objective journalist is going to come along and present the truth so wholesale and 100% exactly as it exists in the reality in some sort of edited news package is and not only an ideal, but it's a myth. It completely cannot exist. And this is reflected everywhere, not only in, as we've talked about, in what stories are covered or what is aren't covered or who is talked to and who is not talked to for comment on these different stories, but how about just the nature of the language itself in which this information is conveyed, choosing what language to use to describe a certain phenomenon or a certain group of people is in and of itself ideologically informed. Whether someone is a terrorist or a freedom fighter is something that will completely skew the, the reader or the listener or the viewer's perception of that story. And again, it's not the type of thing that's ever explicitly stated, but that language itself shapes our understanding of the news story and is ideologically and politically informed. So again, there is no escaping the subjectivity of having a worldview. Now, this isn't a bad thing necessarily, and we'll get back into that in a moment, 
But let's just take a moment to stop and think about just how pervasive this is and how this actually works in a nuts and bolts level. And to do that, let's take a listen to a, a short excerpt from the always informative Rev- Revelations Radio News podcast. And from a recent uh, podcast where Andrew Hoffman and Tim Kilkenny were discussing a story about drone technologies and pointing out some of the interesting uses of language within that story that, again, belie the idea of objective journalism. Oregon company to sell drone defense technology to public. The company says it won't knock drones down, but will stop them from completing their mission. And this comes from, I think, U.S. News and World Report. Our website. So, um, do you want to keep a drones out of your backyard? An Oregon company says that it has developed and will soon start selling technology that disables unmanned aircraft. The company, called Domestic Drone Countermeasures, was founded in late February because some of its engineers see unmanned aerial vehicles, which are already being flown by law enforcement in some areas, and could see wider commercial integration into American airspace by 2015 as unwanted eyes in the sky. I think there's some ordinary people out there that feel that way too. Um, just a little aside here. Stories always try to, um, as far as the use of language, they say like civil liberties advocates. They always try to make it sound like a small group of people that isn't you. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. I, you know what Not, I hear when I hear civil liberties advocates? You know what I hear? Bleeding, uh, bleeding heart liberals. Bleeding heart liberals. Yeah, and that's what you're supposed to hear. Right. You're, you're not supposed to hear um, ordinary, common sense filled Americans with fighting for your rights. Yeah. Well, I think that is very well observed. It is absolutely true that every time you see a term like civil rights activist or whatever other terms are employed, it is shaping or it is meant to shape our understanding of the story and it is coming from a certain ideological background. And that's not to say that that objectivity could could then thereby be restored by simply using a different term. Using a, a different term like someone who is concerned about fundamental freedoms is Again, it, it that term is pushing an agenda, and perhaps that agenda is one of freedom and liberty that we uh, here at the Corbett Report uh, could agree on, but still, it is pushing an agenda. I don't pretend that the Corbett Report is some objective ideal that exists in the world of, of objective reality. It is coming from my ideological framework and from my perspective, and Every single other piece of media you ever see from anyone who has ever existed or will ever exist on the planet Earth similarly comes from such a perspective. And it is only when we start to forget or start to wish away that fact that we can be manipulated by that media. When we understand that something is coming from an ideological background, then we can at least take that into account when we are taking in that information. Now, let's step back for a moment and ask ourselves how and why and when this ideal of objective journalism even started in the first place. Because again, like so many other ideals that we have just taken as basic reality, it itself has been inculcated in us through a concerted uh, system of indoctrination that has worked so well that we now forget there was ever a time when this was not something that was seen as an ideal to strive towards in journalism. So let's let's take a look at a very interesting article on this subject called Against Objective Journalism. 
that was written by Kevin Carson and appeared on the C4SS.org website, the Center for a Stateless Society website. It was posted there back in October of 2012, although the article itself dates back from 2008. But reading from that article, uh, Kevin Carson writes, quote, The conventional model of objectivity in professional journalism, otherwise known as he said, she said, and stenography, as it's practiced today in the dead tree media, goes back to Walter Lippmann. As Christopher Lash described it in The Revolt of the Elites, Lippmann's view of society and government in general was that substantive questions could be safely let left to experts whose access to scientific knowledge immunized them against the emotional symbols and stereotypes that dominated public debate. His influence on 20th century journalism in particular was to destroy the earlier function of newspapers in the 19th century as the center of democratic debate. Newspapers might have served as extensions of the town meeting. Instead, they embraced a misguided ideal of objectivity and defined their goal as the circulation of reliable information. Lash believed that the ideal of objectivity was wrong-headed because it ignored the dialectical nature of truth. What democracy requires is vigorous public debate, not information. Of course, it needs information too, but the kind of information it needs can be generated only by debate. We do not know what we need to know until we ask the right questions, and we can identify the right questions only by subjecting our own ideas about the world to the test of public controversy. Information, usually seen as the precondition of debate, is better understood as its byproduct. When we get into arguments that focus and fully engage our attention, we become avid seekers of relevant information. Otherwise, we take in information passively, if we take it in at all. End quote. Well, that's an absolutely important piece of this puzzle, and I will direct people to that article so you can go and read it in its entirety, talking there about the idea of Lippmann and how he introduced this ideal of objectivity into the journalistic profession that did not necessarily exist uh, before that point. And I hope people will not get hung up on words like democracy, etc. in that article. Obviously, that's not the point of the article. The point is that it, the, the, the idea of objectivity is itself a complete myth, a fabrication, something that has been put in there specifically so that we can take the debate out of the, this realm of journalism so that people will only ever see the one side that is presented in the way that it is presented by the people who are controlling and editing that media. So this is an important point, and it can get quite profuse with philosophical jargon and, and reflections. So let's break it down in a very simple way and a very effective way. Let's turn to a recent edition of the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, where Joe Rogan broke this down with guest Brian Callen. We don't have an education system that teaches you how to think. Right. We don't. That's we don't. so true. And, and that's 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 the there is an art to learning, man. There's an art to learning. There's an art to how. It's an art to being a human being. That's right. It really is, and no one teaches us. We don't know what the fuck we're doing. We're all idiots raising other people by with you know with the same flaws that we were raised there's with. No, there's no manual for it. Exactly, and there's and you know when you look at what we consider our. Our, our source of uh, education as far as like what is distributed to us nightly what's the news right I mean that's really the education that people have mm -hmm. today mm -hmm. once you get out of school 
unless you're reading books on your own, where are you getting your information about right. the world? You're getting right. it from the fucking news. That's right. Well, the news doesn't really represent what's A, going on in the world, and B, it doesn't say anything about how you should be dealing with this, how you should be thinking, how we, how we should uh, resolve these issues. It's like this tattletale that just goes running over and tells us about all the fucked up shit that's happening in the world, but they don't, there's, it's not a dialogue with a person. It's and like by, a source of information. By the way, that, that complaint goes back <clears throat> at least 3,500 years. Socrates, when he was in, at his trial, said, you, take a, you wouldn't take a horse to try to ride it and not train it. The same applies to a human being. You've got you to start with, with the notion of he was trying to teach philosophy in the sense that you better, you better know what questions to ask throughout your life. And we should start with young people, educate young people the right way with the right questions. If you don't do that, then, then you know, you've got to start with a base almost, you know, and, and uh, we don't. We don't do that, man. We, we, it's, it's almost like learning jujitsu, just learning moves without learning the principles behind it first. Now, I hope the pervasive and insidious nature of this myth of journalistic objectivity is starting to become apparent, and we can start to see the different ways that it manifests itself in our society, so that our ideal of news is supposedly just streams of information that don't tell us anything about how that applies to us or put it into the context which would help, help to make it make sense to all of us out there. And this cannot be an ideal that we should be striving to, even if it were possible, and even if more or less approximations of objectivity could be, uh, could be reached through some sort of process. The point is that we should not be striving for this. We should be striving for the vigorous debate that, that can be generated by ideologically informed and, and consciously ideologically informed media. Now, this presents the question, the obvious logical question of, well, then what can we do? What should we be doing? What should be the ideal we're striving for if it isn't for this objective myth of being able to stand above all of this and somehow objectively present the truth to people? Well, obviously, the question is something that is very pertinent to our current conversation as the technological ability for people to become their own media through the internet and other technological advances is making this more of a pertinent questions to question to people's everyday lives. So on that note, I actually had the chance to discuss this very topic recently with the author of that article, Against Objective Journalism, uh, Kevin Carson, uh, with the Center for Stateless Society at C4SS.org. So that interview is now up on CorbettReport.com, and I will invite you to go and listen to the audio in its entirety. But let's just listen to a sample where we're talking about the history of uh, journalism that was not uh, adhering to this objective standard, and what uh, and how technology is shaping and developing a new idea for what journalism can or should be. Well, well, then let's talk about what would contrast with this idea as it's been handed down to us for generations now, and which I'm sure we've all sort of been steeped in from the moment of our birth, which, which is uh, one aspect of that, of course, is this idea of objective journalism and the way that we see that uh, things are reported in the mainstream media. It's important to understand that this idea really is uh, dating from, from really the, 
the early 20th century. And that if you go back, for example, as you point out in your article to the 19th century, we have historical antecedents of the blatantly opinionated, blatantly partisan newspapers that were operating at that time that came from a definite point of view and that its readers understood exactly that where it was coming from and, and what voice was behind it, which was uh, quite a different way of, of doing things. Let's talk a little bit about some of those historical antecedents to, to the contrast to what the system that we're used to at this present time. Yeah, well, uh, in, 19th, in the 19th century model of uh, journalism, the party press, and, and for that matter, the earlier uh, 18th century pamphlets and broadsides, um, the idea was that you approach the truth not through pretend objectivity and pretend, uh, pretending not to see an independent realm of facts, you approach the truth through cross-examination and dialectic. The uh, proper solution to error was not pretending to be objective and just reporting what public spokespersons and HR departments say. It was uh, to make the best case for the truth as you understood it and then have other people relentlessly cross-examine you and attack your use of the facts and your logic and present a counter case. Exactly what the same thing a cross-examining attorney does to a witness on the stand. No. It's what, uh, I'm sorry, it's what uh, the ideology of science uh, did to uh, nature, basically uh, put it to the test through active examination. Exactly right. More more of a dialectical model for <clears throat> for arriving at a truth rather than having some sort of objective realm that is supposedly being apprehended through this objective presentation. And I think that it, that's an important distinction for people to keep in mind. But let's let's talk about how that could work in a twenty first century um, context, because obviously the technology for disseminating this information has vastly changed since that time. So I think the idea of returning to that historical antecedent would look somewhat different in our modern era. Perhaps you can talk about the way that blogging and, and this new idea for uh, citizen-based journalism is transforming this old paradigm of the supposed objective journalist, uh, journalism? Well, I think um, blogs and online news sites and other aggregators have replaced the old-style newspapers, the most efficient way of aggregating news from different sources. Very little of the news I read is actually under the uh, masthead of a single newspaper that some individual editor thought was the best stuff to put together in a single issue. Uh, most of what I read is broken down into individual stories from different newspapers, different wire services, and so forth that are put together by the editors of uh, news aggregator sites of various sorts, whether they're, they're blogs or sites like Alternet or uh, whatever. Um, and because the raw material is being used in a completely different way, it's accessible to anyone who wants to criticize it. All you have to do is put in a hyperlink to the story uh, to Fisk it uh, 
or uh, take it apart piece by piece. You can make an active case by drawing on news stories from a large number of different sites and different newspapers, just uh, throwing in the hyperlink to them. Uh, you're no, you're no longer limited to the framing of a newspaper editor. You're able to take the raw material generated by reporters themselves and uh, aggregate it into your own picture. Once again, Kevin Carson of C4SS.org. All right, let's try to wrap this up by by going over some of the points that we've established in today's episode, and I think we've made a few different points. The first one is that, of course, the journalists who present themselves as the uh, uh, standards and the ideals of this objective journalism paradigm are themselves certainly not objective. They are very much ensconced in the political, financial corporate uh, matrix and are themselves beholden to the financial interests and other interests which puppeteer them, such as Charlie Rose and his Bilderberg attendance and Walter Cronkite and his advocacy of world government and uh, Thomas Braden and Anderson Cooper and all the other CIA mockingbird uh, employees out there. Um, And we've established that point, but we've made the further point that the uh, ideal of journalistic objectivity is itself completely unattainable. It is a myth. We've made the further point that it is not even something that should be striven towards, that we should not try to reach that uh, pinnacle of journalistic objectivity. What we should be trying to do is to lay our ideological persuasion and our cards out on the table and to argue from that perspective. And, uh, And to reiterate that point and to drive it home, I simply ask you to cogitate on who is the more insidious and effective liar. Someone who comes out and tells you they are coming from a certain point of view and then tells you information based on that point of view, or someone who does not tell you they are coming from a certain point of view and for decade after decade after decade subtly inculcates their worldview into you by pretending to be objective and presenting both sides of the stories, but subtly manipulating every single story through what is covered, how it is covered, and what language is used, and every other detail that is not made absolutely apparent to the reader or listener. It is, I would posit, the latter who is the more insidious liar and someone who is more capable thereby of manipulating and steering society. So we have to rid ourselves of this idea of journalistic objectivity and understand that we are now moving into a paradigm that is completely different, that we don't have to take the word of journalists for anything, and that we can independently verify and corroborate things for ourselves. We are all necessarily these days, by the ways that we are receiving information, if not our own journalists, at the very least our own editors, and we can go and and examine multiple different sources and take that on board, and it is certain helpful to understand what viewpoint or what ideology each source is coming from to help understand and process the information that is being presented. And we must keep in mind that every single source is itself coming from a very specific point of view, a very certain ideology and a certain worldview that shapes its perception of even what is news and what is not news. Well, that is our heady discussion for this week. So once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thanking you for joining me for this episode of The Corbett Report and hoping you'll join me again next week for another edition. Sometimes you won't be popular, some folks will get annoyed, but if you write the truth, you'll always be fine. Sha-la-la-la-la-la, sha la
any attempt to achieve world order before that time must be the work of the devil. Well, join me. I, I'm glad to sit here at the right hand of Satan. Announcing the Corbett Report 2009 Video Archive. Over 90 minutes of never-before-seen interviews and classic video reports, including... These major actors, a handful of financial institutions, are picking up uh, the real economy at rock-bottom prices. Very simply speaking, I think uh, there can't be any justifiable wars. Well, and I think this is this is all basically also a big hat tip to the work that Project Censored does. And that is one of those things that, again, is always a real, a, a big effective tool in the info war, is that sort of in one link, you could send that, you could send that out and have someone read that list and just go, oh my God, I didn't know these things. It's a simple decision to make, but one that we must make quickly before the argument can be spun away and environmentalism can go back to business as usual. And uh, I, I didn't like what I saw from an emotional standpoint and from a, a scientific standpoint, from just the physics of watching the pulverization of these buildings. Well, they, they came out and said, look, the, this report is not to be used for policy. But then they set up the summary for policymakers. The absolute contradiction of that. I've always considered myself to be politically motivated and politically interested, but it wasn't something that I think defined my life in, in the way that it does now. The Corbett Report, 2009 Video Archive. Available now on DVD. Buy your copy today at corbettreport.com.